Good to see you all this morning. I, uh, I've been looking forward to uh, being with you here. I had hoped, though, to have more of us here. We've been dealing with illness in our house. Kids picked up stomach bugs from school and whatnot, and my daughter went down yesterday. So um, my wife is home with them. She just had a birthday last week, and I just got to tell you, we received birthday cards and gifts from you guys, and uh, she was ex- excited to say thank you. Nobody does hospitality for missionaries quite like you guys. Um, I was uh, just recently, we had a men's conference, and Pastor Cliff was over there, and, and Pastor Brian, one of our associate pastors at the church there, was standing there, and I was bragging on you guys to Pastor Brian. Uh, and he texted me later in the week and said, Tell me what they do. We need to do better with this. So you guys are actually inspiring us to. Uh, at Southern View Chapel to maybe become a little more hospitable and in that way too. I just, uh, we really appreciate you all and it's uh, wonderful to be here with you again this morning, even, even though you're stuck just with me. So I was here last year on Father's Day. I remember that because you guys had cookies everywhere. And, um, and Pastor Cliff wasn't here that week. They're on vacation. And so I have to do better this time than last time because he's here to observe. Um, he couldn't kick me out last time in the middle of the service. So um, when I was here last time, I did uh, Sunday school and explained what Civil Servant Ministries does. And uh, Carla Matrish, my coworker who has a women's ministry that we were just beginning, was here with me as well. Um, and, uh, and we went through all that. And then I did kind of a ministry-oriented sermon uh, regarding fear and anger and how we as Christians interact with politics. I'm not going to do any of that today. I'm actually going to go through Matthew 11 today. Um, and I want to show you more of the type of content that we do, that we give in the Capitol. But before I do that, I do want to give some of you, I'm sure weren't here last year. So I'll give you a very brief synopsis of what Civil Servant Ministries does and what we endeavor to do um, with, our, with our elected officials. Um, we have three goals with the ministry. One is to share the gospel with those that don't know Christ in the capital and in the surrounding uh, uh, government offices. Um, there are obviously many that don't know Christ. We have a model of going to people in government in the scriptures. The Apostle Paul was called specifically to go to Caesar. He went to Rome on purpose because God told him to. And um, those, you can find those passages in Acts, uh, Acts 9, uh, 15, and also in, um, in Acts 23, we get to see... Uh, that calling for him. Uh, we also see in 1 Timothy 2, there is a call to pray specifically for those in high places. And it says so that we can lead quiet and peaceful lives in all dignity and godliness because God uh, desires that all men be saved, including our elected officials. Um, I think that's a, a very telling passage. It's the, it is our main passage for our ministry. Uh, the second goal we have, which is actually kind of a 1B, if the sharing the gospel is 1A, this one is 1B, and that is we have believers in state government, and uh, they're in a tough place over there. It is not a very Christian-friendly environment, so we want to give them a place to come together for Christian fellowship. We want to edify them as they're away from their families, as they're away from their church, so we have Bible study each week and on Thursday morning, and they can come meet with us, and uh, we have a wonderful time of prayer and Bible study. Uh, depending on where we are in session and those types of things, we could have anywhere from two or three people that come all the way up to 15 to 20, uh, depending on who's in town and what's happening. Uh, the third thing we want to do is we want to encourage the church to biblical engagement with politics. Um, hopefully we can learn to not engage politics like the world around us with all the anger and vitriol that they have, but we can engage politics with confidence. I love the third verse there. That was great. Uh, all the things that are going on around us, but yet... Lord is still in control. 
That was good. Uh, but we want to encourage you that way as well. So from a nuts and bolts standpoint, what it looks like is this. Um, I write Bible studies. I've been going through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew now for four years, which sounds horrible maybe. Maybe not some of you guys. go. You guys take a long time going through passages here sometimes probably. Uh, we've had some interruptions. COVID kept us out for a while. That we, you know, normally, you know, I'm moving through at a pretty good clip. Um, but I'm currently at about Matthew 16 with them. And what I do is I actually teach it as a Sunday school class, first Southern View Chapel, um, in segments, and then I repackage what what I this, the work I do there into a front and back sided nice piece that can be handed to every office in the capital. And Carla and I go and distribute those to every office. House, Senate, um, all of the the governor's office—they all get—they all get these um, these Bible studies. Um, sometimes, and if you're in ministry or you've done ministry, you know how negative thoughts can come in. Sometimes I wonder if anybody's reading these things. Other times, I'm given confirmation, and the Lord is kind in that, and people will tell me what they've gotten from it or that they've been reading it. Uh, sometimes I see him sitting on someone's desk on a on a house rep's desk or something like that, and it's been it's been great. We do that on Tuesday or Wednesday each week. Um, we invite the lawmakers to come meet with us on, on Thursday morning, and we go through it. We usually have between 25 and 30 minutes to do that with them. I typically take in some bagels and coffee or something else for breakfast because they expect to be fed, and uh, we have a good time together that way. I also have a Bible study with our Supreme Court. Um, we typically have three of the seven justices that come every week, and then we also have a librarian and two uh, marshals. That join us, so we have a pretty good group that comes, and that is a fascinating Bible study. In fact, that'll be coming up. Our May session is coming up there, and um, that's been that's been fantastic. Um, so that's what it looks like um, uh, on a week to week basis. When we go in and we distribute the Bible studies, that's where we look for opportunities for one on one to gather prayer requests, to witness, to do all these things. This is where the one on one interaction comes comes about. And um, the other thing that we've had the opportunity to do is the Senate has relied on us in the past, Sean Lewis was before me, and now me, to do the invocation frequently. The invocation through COVID was taken away. They quit doing it. They started doing a moment of silence. Some of you may have heard about that. There was a little bit of controversy. Um, I kept on offering myself. I was like, I will do, I will jump through the hoops. I will get the COVID tests, whatever you guys need, you know. And, uh, but they were keeping it away. Well, here in this uh, the session that just ended, finally, two weeks before session ended, they said, we're going to bring back the invocation. And up to that point, we had been restricted from meeting with our senators. We had access to the House reps. We had access to the Supreme Court. But for some reason, the Senate was tied off unless you could get these specific COVID tests. And since we weren't in the system, since they weren't doing invocations, we couldn't get tested. And so we were kind of blocked off from the Senate for... I mean, we, it was a couple of years other than what we could get done outside of the Capitol. So they finally brought it back, and uh, we got put in the system to get the COVID tests, and I got tested. I mean, I was one of the most COVID-free individuals in the country, I'm pretty sure, after I was tested so many times. Um, and they make you sign a, sign a thing saying that anybody can have my COVID tests and my DNA. I don't know where it's at. Who knows? All for the sake of the ministry, I suppose. Um, but, uh, but I was doing this and what happened was through the invocation is we regained our access to the senators, which was wonderful. And in the last two weeks, there were 14 days of session. I did the invocation three times. Carla did it twice. 
And so five of the 14 days, it was, uh, it was us being able to do that, and it was able to allow us to regain relationship with a lot of these, a lot of these folks that we hadn't seen. And I'll just share this real quickly as well. Carla was very nervous the first time. Obviously, you can imagine. I got pictures standing up on that podium. You stand where the president of the Senate stands, and there's all kinds of people around, and it's, it's very official. And she was nervous. Um, and I got to go in with her and kind of set her up, and then I had to go to the gallery before she prayed. And as I was walking out, one of the Democrat senators actually grabbed my arm and said, it's so glad to have you back. And I, and I was thankful for that. And I said, hey, would you mind saying hi to Carla? She's doing it for the first time. So uh, she walked up to Carla. They ended up having about a 10-minute conversation. They've been exchanging emails ever since, uh, prayer requests and all these things. It's wonderful. And, uh, and they hadn't met each other yet. And I've only really talked to this lady two or three times. So it was a, it was a wonderful connection. And then a few minutes after that, um, I was up in the gallery, and Senator uh, Darren Bailey, who's running for governor, uh, made eye contact with me, and, and uh, I kind of pointed at Carla, and uh, he gave me a thumbs up, and he went down and prayed with her uh, before she got up to do that. She was just so put at ease and so, uh, you know, felt welcomed by that, and she did a wonderful job with the invocation. So I will say this. The invocation is a neat opportunity. Um, it's not the main part of our ministry. There are some terrible invocations given, um, and, and, you know, it's just one of those things where I don't view that as like, you know, this is what we're here for or anything like that, but getting the opportunity to do the invocation opens up opportunities, and so we, we are uh, thankful for that, for that opportunity, and so that just kind of gives you a quick synopsis of kind of what it looks like um, for us, uh, and then, uh, and, and we just love the opportunities the Lord gives us there as well. Uh, pray for us. Pray for what the things going on in the building. It's uh, it's not a it's not a good environment. It's getting worse all the time, as you might imagine. And uh, the, but people there need the Lord. So as I mentioned, we've been marching through the book of Matthew in in the capital. I, I this will be the third kind of iteration of Matthew 11 that I've done because I taught it in Sunday school. Then I repackaged it and taught it in a more devotional style in the capital, and now I've kind of repackaged it into a sermon for you guys. So I love Matthew 11, um, and uh, we're going to be taking a look at uh, what, I, what I would call doubt versus unbelief. Um, we get to see John the Baptist express doubt and Jesus confirm him, and we have to see the unbelief and the condemnation of his hometown, and we'll, look at, we'll be looking at that today. So the author, I'm going to give you some background. We need a little context here. Matthew is hard to just pick up and go. You have to have a little bit of context of what's happening. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background quickly. This is a little bit more Sunday school style in terms of the beginning part here, but I, I feel like it's important to understand and to know where Matthew's coming from and what's happening. So the author of this great gospel is Levi, also known as Matthew, uh, who was a tax collector and a traitor to the Jews. Uh, he was collecting money on behalf of the occupying Roman government, and he was extorting his own people for his own personal gain. That, gain, that was the nature of the tax collector. So um, we get to see in uh, Matthew 9, 9 that he, he, he gives us his testimony, and it's one verse, and I absolutely love it. He sa- it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named called Matthew, sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. That's all we get. That's all Matthew gives us of his testimony. Um, it's, uh, he is the only of the 12, the only one of the 12, that upon following Jesus immediately lost his, his, his livelihood. The others got to go back to fishing, or go back at times. We see that in the, in the Gospels. 
Matthew had, did not have an honorable profession that he could go back to. So the moment that he followed Christ, he lost his livelihood. That's very dramatic. So Matthew was a Jew, and his gospel was written to a primary audience of fellow Jews. Uh, I used this illustration with the Supreme Court when we first started going through this. Uh, Matthew writes his gospel almost as a lawyer making his case before the jury, and, his, and the case he's making is that Jesus is the Messiah. So when you read the Gospel of Matthew, that's what's happening. Uh, Jesus is, or Matthew is making his case that he is the Messiah foretold in the Scriptures. So he writes in a more thematic way than the other two synoptic Gospels of Mark and Luke. And that's why you actually can occasionally may see some inconsistencies in the timeline, in the chronology. Um, Matthew didn't stick to a strict chronology. Uh, there is a general chronology. Obviously, it starts with the birth of Christ, and it ends with the ascension and the Great Commission and everything in between. But you might find that specific miracles or specific stories happen in a little bit different spot or location than it does in the other Gospels. That's because Matthew is less concerned about strict chronology. He's not giving just a timeline account of what took place. He's making his case to his people that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's willing to move those around a little bit to make that happen. So we don't have to, if anyone ever brings that up, will this miracle happen here in this gospel and happen here in this gospel? It doesn't matter. The author had a purpose in mind, and he was willing to, to stay with his theme. So in today's passage, we're going to explore chapter 11. Jesus will field a question from John the Baptist that's a little bit shocking. And then he preaches a mini-sermon to the people that witnessed this interaction, and we'll, we'll take a look at that. What Matthew is teaching here, I think, is encouraging to us. It's wonderful to some, but it also comes with a warning. In this passage, Matthew shows us the contrast between doubt and unbelief. And if we're honest, everyone doubts at some point. We all experience doubt. The first thing I want to do, though, if you're in Matthew 11, is I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and we'll start taking a look at what what takes place here. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to, the, said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to him, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So in verse 1, we get a continuation from the previous chapter. Uh, So going back just briefly, uh, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. It's a full sermon. Uh, It's a full invitation to the kingdom. Then in chapters 8 and 9, we're kind of given a highlight reel of a Sunday school class, complete with the flannel graph. Right? We just get miracle after miracle after miracle. That's what it does. It shows Jesus calming the sea. It shows Jesus raising the dead. It shows Jesus healing the sick. And we just get to read just in, just in a kind of like almost a hodgepodge highlight reel of all these things taking place in, verse, in chapters 8 and 9. We've got to keep in mind as we read chapters 8 and 9 that Jesus always worked miracles for a purpose. He was compassionate. He did want to help the people. But have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't speak and heal all the infirmities of everyone in the world all at once? He didn't do that, and he could have. 
The reason he worked miracles primarily was always to validate his message. So the validation of the message here, I think the reason that Matthew couches it the way he did is because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the people were astonished because Jesus was teaching as one having authority. The reason he follows in chapters 8 and 9 with all the miracles is to show the validation that he had the authority to teach that way. That Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. So at the end of chapter 9, Jesus tells the disciples that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And then in chapter 10, it moves right into a mission. Uh, He's going to send the disciples out on their first mission. And he tells them all these things. What the message is, the kingdom, who the message is for, the Jews, who it's not for, the Gentiles, yet. That's coming, praise the Lord, because most of us are Gentiles. Um, he tells them how they're going to be provided for. He's gonna, he tells them how they should, how, that they should not collect money for themselves, because they're going to have special power to heal like Jesus had. Can you imagine how rich they would have got, could have made themselves? So he tells them you're not allowed to take a money belt. He tells them these things. He gives them all these instructions. And then he warns them of persecution that will come and that there is a cost of following Christ. So that brings us to chapter one, or verse 1 here. And it says, when Jesus had finished giving instructions, those are the instructions he had just given. Okay? And so Jesus gives those instructions. But then what I love about this is he doesn't send out his newfound disciples or newly minted workers out. And it says that he went then and uh, sat by the Sea of Galilee and relaxed. Right? No. He didn't go to the Sea of Galilee and relax. It says that he went out to teach and preach himself. So as Jesus goes out to teach and preach on his own mission, apart from the disciples, he is approached by John the Baptist's disciples. It says in verse 2, John was imprisoned. He heard of the works of Christ. And he sends his disciples to him with this with this question. And the question is somewhat stunning to us, I think. Are you the expected one, the Messiah, or shall we look for someone else? The reason it's stunning is because what do we know about John the Baptist? Um, if, I, if, if this was a Sunday school class, I'm sure I could give you this list and you guys would probably put your hands up and, and go roll through these. He was a rough and tough character, wasn't he? He, he lived without comfort. He lived out in the country. He dressed in camel hair. He ate bugs. You might have some people like that in here. I don't know. I know we have some in our church. We ha- he, he lived without the comforts of life. His message was a message of repentance. It wasn't a weak message. He was calling people to repentance. He was unafraid of the Jewish leadership. When he was out baptizing in the Jordan River, the, if you remember, the Sanhedrin comes out to him, and the first thing he says is, who warned you of the judgment to come? And he called him out. He was an unafraid guy. He, we know he's humble. Um, in John one twenty seven, he said he's unworthy to tie Jesus' sandal. We know he's bold. He's currently imprisoned. And if you look into why he was imprisoned, um, the story becomes something like a Jerry Springer episode. He went to Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one that killed all the young boys, right? He was the one in control and in power, the governor, so to speak, of when when Jesus was born. We know he was a terrible guy. This is the son. He's even worse than the dad. Uh, The dad actually, Herod, Herod the Great, actually split his territory. Caesar was king, 
So they weren't kings. They were more like governors. He split it into four territories so each of his sons could have a territory to rule. And they were all terrible. And if if you get into some of the historical reading, it's just some really uh, seedy stuff. But basically what happened was Herod the Tetrarch stole his sister-in-law for his own to be his own wife. So he has this incestuous, uh, adulterous relationship, and John goes in his office and calls him out and says, repent. Pretty amazing. That's why he's in prison. We know that John baptized Jesus against his own will, but he obeyed. And this is the biggest one. Luke 1.15 says that he had the Holy Spirit from birth. Um, John the Baptist had a unique role to play, and he had the Holy Spirit from birth. And here he is asking, are you the one, or should we look for someone else? So when I first read this, when I was going through it, I'm like, what happened? What in the world happened here? How did John go from all the things I just described to asking this question? Well, I think the answer is, the circumstances changed. This can happen to any of us. Is it possible that this means something else? Is John maybe not experiencing doubt? Well, I think he was. I think he was experiencing doubt, clearly. So despite all these things being true about him, John is still a man. He's still a sinful man. But his circumstances had changed dramatically. John, much like the disciples of Jesus, had an expectation of what they thought was going to happen when the Messiah returned. Um, They had no problem believing that he was the Messiah, But the the way things were transpiring wasn't exactly what they had in mind. They thought he was going to set up his earthly kingdom now. They thought he was going to expel the, the, the Romans, set up his kingdom, and reign on earth. They didn't have the understanding of the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the age to come and a second coming, all those things. They all thought at this point that Jesus was on the path to being king sooner rather than later. And they thought this partially because of their knowledge of the scriptures given to this point. They had an eschatology. They had a belief in the way these things were going to transpire based on what was given from the Old Testament at this time. And what was happening wasn't adding up. So John finds himself in prison. He's awaiting execution. And he's hearing of the works of Jesus, as it says here. And I'm sure he's also hearing that it's being rejected. Wouldn't you expect that if someone comes and is doing things that no one else has ever done or can do, healing the sick, raising the dead, all those things, that people in droves would be following him, that they'd be accepting the kingdom, that they would be doing these things? They weren't. And he was hearing this. There were oppositions. There were factions. There were people coming up against him. It wasn't going the way that he thought it was going to go. So John asks the question, are you the one? Or should I look for someone else? So his circumstances had changed. Um, And and honestly, he's not the only one. Uh, If you read through the, the, the... One of my favorite parts about Matthew is watching the journey of the disciples as they learn and as they try to grasp the same kind of thing. Uh, This time of year, I always feel bad for Peter, right? We just finished Easter. When you go through the Holy Week and you see Peter go from one moment defending Jesus with a sword... Missed the guy's head, hit his ear, right? He was going to kill that guy in defense of Jesus. And then like just a few hours later, he's denying that he even knows him. What happened to Peter? Circumstances changed. 
Jesus was arrested. What he thought was going to happen didn't happen that way. It was the same type of thing. I always feel really bad for Thomas. Like most of us think doubting is his first name, right? I mean, uh, he's one of the 12 foundation stones of the church. Thomas was an apostle. Thomas was a follower of Christ, and we know him. There, who of us actually says his name without saying doubting, right? It's 2,000 years later, the poor guy. For all time, that's his name. Uh, he was a close follower of Christ. He was a disciple. He did great things for the Lord. But he wouldn't believe until he touched Jesus' wounds, until he, until he saw for himself. Well, what happened to Thomas? His circumstances changed. Something happened that he didn't have. He saw Jesus on the cross. It wasn't what he expected. In each of these cases, the men that were doubting all knew Jesus. They all loved him. They were all committed to him. And they knew the scriptures too. So when things started to go differently than what they thought they knew from scripture, they needed answers. We see the disciples go through this process in the Gospels of grasping more as they go along, but not quite still getting it. Um, Malachi 4.5 is, is one of the great prophecies of the Old Testament that um, says that Elijah the prophet would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Um, so they're all looking for Elijah. This is just as an example. If you've ever participated in a Seder dinner, we have a missionary um, that we support at our church um, that ministers to the Jews in Florida. And he came and did a Seder dinner so we could experience what that's like and what they look for. At one point in the Seder dinner, they actually sit, stop the dinner and they send the kids out the door to look down the street to see if Elijah's coming based on this passage. They still do that to this day. They're looking for the forerunner, right? This is the passage that says that Elijah will come before the Messiah comes. So that's what they're doing. They're looking for Elijah. The disciples are still confused about this, by the way, all the way up until Matthew 17 on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes three disciples up. He transfigures himself. He pulls back his humanity and shows them his glory. They go, oh, they freak out is what they do, right? Peter becomes just a bumbling, like, oh, let's make tabernacles for all three of you because he appeared with Moses and Elijah, right? And uh, until Jesus restores them, their minds, their mindsets. But then what does it say? They come down the mountain and the first question they have is, what about Elijah? Right? They have an understanding of what's supposed to happen. They still are wondering what is going on with this situation. Things are not lining up the way we thought. They're wondering, well, if you're the Messiah, where's Elijah? Jesus answers their question and says, John the Baptist was Elijah. You missed it. So he explains that to them. Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They knew the scripture, but what did they miss? So Jesus tells them that Elijah did come, and they missed it. In Matthew 17, 13, it says that the disciples understood then that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. That was the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5. This is all happening differently. Um, this was happening on a regular basis. The concept of the first coming and second coming of Christ was missed. They didn't have the vantage point that we have now. In fact, the disciples still believed up until uh, Jesus was arrested in Matthew 24. Uh, they look at the temple right before the Olivet Discourse and they say, what a magnificent building. Jesus says, there won't be a stone left of it. It'll be destroyed. 
They say, what will be the sign of your coming? They expect it to be in their lifetime, even with that question. Well, if the temple's going to be destroyed, that's the end of all things, and you'll be returning. So even at that point, they're still, they're still grasping for this. They're still trying to understand. So going back to John the Baptist in our passage, he asks Jesus this question through his disciples, are you the one, or should we look for someone else? Before we look at how Jesus answers the question, I think it's easy for us, many of us in this room, pretty much probably all of us, have had circumstances in life go differently than we expected. Things have happened that we had hoped would be different. Um, I had a lawmaker come to me just at the end of session a couple weeks ago, and he was witnessing to another lawmaker, which I like that even more than me doing it, right? Because they're colleagues. I think it's wonderful. And he said, this gentleman had a question for me. His question was, why should I pray? And he went on to tell his story. Both of my parents had cancer. I prayed for the first time in my life that they would be healed and both of them died. Why should I pray? His circumstances didn't go the way that he thought when he prayed. I've been trying to help this lawmaker with resources to continue to build, effectively minister him. What he's really grappling with is the goodness of God. And so that's where I've been trying to kind of coach him in his effort to uh, minister to this man. But his circumstances changed. Most of us can probably think of a time in our life when circumstances didn't go as we thought, and it brought about doubt. So John the Baptist is in that situation. But let's look at how Jesus answers the question. He comes down hard on him, right? He comes down and says, you men of little faith, how dare you question the Messiah? And he doesn't say that. He doesn't come down on him. He doesn't rebuke him. Verses 4 and 5, he says, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the, deaf, the dead are raised up, and the poor of the gospel preached to them. This is actually just a wonderful, wonderful passage. He alludes to Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. He paraphrases back to them. And Isaiah 61, 1. These are prophecies about the Messiah and the sign of what he would be doing. It was these things, all the things that Jesus was doing. So, scripture, so the scriptures that John would have known that maybe were causing him some issues, Jesus uses the scripture to confirm to John, yes, I am he, I am the Messiah. And I love that he uses the scripture to do that in this passage. He confirms graciously with no rebuke for his doubt. He confirms that he is who he claimed to be. Then in verse 6, John is given a blessing. Jesus says, And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. How did John not take offense at him? Well, I think the answer is, John sent his disciples to Jesus for his answer. He wanted the confirmation to come from the Messiah himself. He didn't go to the scribes. He didn't go to the law. He didn't do his own independent research to try to arrive at a conclusion. He didn't visit a fortune teller, which was a thing then. We don't do that as much these days, but they would go to diviners and fortune tellers. He didn't go to Google, which they didn't have, right? But we do. He didn't go to other sources. He went back to the source. He didn't take offense at Jesus. He went for confirmation from him. I think this is also a bit of a dig 
at the, where he, at the folks that he had uh, been ministering to, the folks in his hometown, which we're going to see here in a minute, who had taken offense at him and had rejected his message despite what they had witnessed. But John coming in this way kind of reminded me of the father in Mark 9 who brought his demon-possessed son who was tormented to Jesus. And, he, and when he asked him for help, you can heal him. He said, I believe, Lord. And he said, what? Help my unbelief. Um, I think John's position was kind of the same. He came to the Lord himself and he said, are you the one? Confirm this to me. Help me. So he goes to the source. Now, as John's disciples leave Jesus, um, he says, go back and report this to John. We don't get to see how John reacted to the information, but I'm sure that the confirmation was well received. Maybe we'll get to find out one day. Um, but John, Jesus then turns his attention from what just took place. He sends them back, and he starts to preach to the people that witnessed this. There was a crowd that had seen this interaction between Jesus and John's disciples. And so he, he addresses this. They all knew who John's disciples were. They, many of them thought maybe John was the Messiah initially. They definitely thought he was a prophet. They thought all these things about John, and we find out later that he also, they also think all these things about Jesus, too. They're trying to figure out who it is, but many of them are not arriving at the right conclusion. But they knew these were famous people at this point. No one had done what John and Jesus were able to do. So they witnessed this conversation. They witnessed the doubt that John expresses. So Jesus questions them. If you look at verse 7, um, verses 7 and 8, he says, And these men, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one whom it is written, Behold, I send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least of the kingdom and greater is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it. Okay, I meant to stop at the previous, at the previous verse there, but he confirms John to the crowd. So he confirms John first to John, and then he turns to the crowd to witness this, and he confirms John to them. Um, he asks them, who'd you go out to see? They all went out to the Jordan River. They all heard about the spectacle of this guy in camel hair baptizing people. And they, uh, and they, they knew who he was. And he says, what'd you go out to see? A, a weakling blown around by the wind? No, you didn't see that. He was bringing, up, bringing back in their mind who John was. Then he says, a guy in soft clothing? This is referring to the yes men that existed in the king's palace that were there to raise the self-esteem of the king, to say, yes, you're the greatest, right? They wore soft clothes. He says, this is who you think John was? No, it wasn't who John was. And then he confirms him by saying, there has never been a man born among women greater than he, except for Christ himself. What a wonderful confirmation. Can you imagine having that said to you, about you by Jesus? I can't. He says he was more than a prophet. Why? Because he was the forerunner for the Messiah. 
which he also confirmed here and also a couple other times, including at the Mount of Transfiguration. So I think it's wonderful that Jesus graciously confirms himself to John in this moment of doubt. He then confirms who John is to the surrounding crowd so they can see. And in a way, Jesus is rebuking the crowd. He's beginning to rebuke them. And then that goes into full on condemnation in the, in the coming verses. The crowd was rejecting him despite what they had witnessed. Um, if you look at verses 16 and 17, just down a little bit, it says, but to, to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance and we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So what's happening here? This is such a weird I mean, we don't even, it's hard to know what's happening here when you, when you just read it on its, you know, on its face, what's happening. So Jesus is launching into a rebuke and basically saying, what am I going to do with you? Uh, The children, he's talking about the children who played in the marketplace. So what they would do, just like our kids today, is they mimic what they saw adults do. Um, Our kids, uh, some of you know, we we run a pumpkin patch and we have a little country store. And when we're setting that up and we have the cash register out, the first thing our kids do is they pretend to play store. They bring stuff up to the cash register and they, they pretend to exchange money and we tell them to put it back where they found it because they're messing up our store. But children mimic what they see adults doing. When you see, a children, when you see them playing house or you see them doing whatever dad does for a job, they, they do that. Well, in this case, they would play in the market. It was a big open space and... In this open space, they would play wedding or funeral because this is the, these were the big things in their culture. Weddings and funerals lasted days, and they involved parades through town. It was very public. Everything they did with weddings and funerals was very public. So they'd make it as real as possible. They would even have flutes, and they would play their flutes. And, of course, some of the kids wanted to play wedding, and some of the kids wanted to play funeral because they're punks, right? And he says... He basically says, so the people that were playing with the wedding, the wedding music are doing their thing, and the kids who wanted to play funeral are doing their thing, and it turns into a racket. It turns into noise. There's no harmony. Everybody's a mess. And then Jesus compares himself and John, right? John came, and he lived in the wilderness and forsook the comforts of life and good food and good drink and, and even people around. He kind of was a loner. Jesus, on the other hand, he does come and he gets made, he gets uh, ridiculed for drinking and eating with sinners and for having these relationships. What is, which is it? They're just, they're, it's just a problem. He says, I can't win with you people. You have a problem either way, no matter what. This is evidence of unbelief, evidence of rejection. And he, and he, and he compares them to children that can't get along. And it's more about not getting along. It's more about what they do with Jesus. So Jesus then begins to pronounce judgment on them. Uh, He singles out in verse 21, both Chorazin and Bethsaida, which are towns in this general area. If you look at verse 21, it says, woe to you, Chorazin. And I can tell you that if Jesus says, woe to you, that's not good. Um, that That is final judgment. Woe to you, Bethsaida. He says, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So Tyre and Sidon were Gentile areas, just to the north. Jesus had ministered there already. 
Um, or no, or he was about to go there. I can't remember which, where I'm at here. But Tyre and Sidon were not Jewish areas. He's saying, they would have witnessed what I've done and repented, but you wouldn't. Then it gets worse. Um, he says in verse 23, and you Capernaum, which is his hometown, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred to you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So we all know Sodom, right? I mean, even 2,000 years later, well, 4,000 probably from the time that it was destroyed. I mean, you remember what happened with Sodom? We all know Sodom and Gomorrah are like the standard by which we measure immoral societies even today. You hear people say, well, this place is becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? We still hold them as the standard of the most wicked a culture can be. Uh, you remember Abraham tried to bargain with God, right? If there's even, he got down to 10. If there's only 10 righteous people, will you spare the city? Well, there weren't. There was just Lot and his family. So they were completely destroyed. But Jesus says here, if I had gone and done the miracles there, they would have repented. What a, what a, what a statement. And I think if you look at Nineveh and what happened with Jonah, they did repent, much to Jonah's chagrin. And so we have this, but the Jews, the people that are in these areas of Capernaum, these people that were witnessing with their own eyes the validation of Jesus as the Messiah, and they were rejecting. And he says, judgment is coming, and it's going to be worse than it, for you than it is for them. Why? Because their judgment was the destruction of their city. This judgment is eternal. Um, so Jesus pronounces this judgment on them because they are witnessing, they are benefiting from, these, from this wonderful view of the Messiah doing these works himself, and they are saying, no, thank you. They are rejecting the offer of the kingdom. They were not repenting. They were going on in their own unbelief to their own judgment. So there's the difference. If you find yourself doubting, if you find yourself in circumstances where things aren't going like you thought, go to the source. Go to the Lord himself. Um, you'll find him in the scriptures. You'll find him in prayer. Come talk to Pastor Cliff or Pastor Darwin or someone here that can help you. And I believe the Lord will confirm you. For those rejecting, going on in unbelief, there's a warning here for us. There's a warning. I would heed that warning. So Jesus then, in verse 27, confirms himself as the Messiah. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal to him. So after all of this, the conversation with John the Baptist's disciples, the conversation with the, the, the sermon to the crowd, with the warnings, Jesus confirms to them that he is of the same essence of the Father. He is the Messiah, as foretold. Now, he could have just stopped there with the contrast. I think Matthew purposely gives us that theme, shows us that contrast that's going on here between doubt and unbelief, knowing that most people are going to experience these things. But look at verses 28 through 30, some of the sweetest words in all the Bible. It says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. So the Lord has just pronounced judgment on these people in, in the hearing, but then he says this, gives them another invitation. He's so kind and so gracious that despite their rejection, he offers one more time himself. He offers the kingdom to them one more time. I think the reason that he makes his invitation in this way, talking about the light burden and the easy yoke, goes into chapter 12. In chapter 12, what we have is we have this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And what happens? Well, the Sabbath had been created by God for the rest and for the good of man who needed rest. They had made it an arduous, difficult day of sacrifice. It had become a burden, a heavy yoke. The whole law had been, they, they'd done that with the law. It was, they, they'd twisted it. And so as Jesus talks to a primarily Jewish audience in this crowd, making that invitation in that way, my burden is light, my yoke is easy, was such a contrast from what they were used to and from what had been done to them. So the invitation is good for us today too. If you are finding yourself burdened, if you're burdened with doubt, if you're burdened with difficulty, come to him. For his burden is light, and his ways are gentle, and he is humble in heart, and he will, you will find rest for your soul. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I just thank you, Lord, so much for the Gospel of Matthew. Thank you for uh, these wonderful truths. Father, as we, uh, try to, as, we, as we live life, Lord, and as things don't go our way sometime in the sinful world, and as we encounter doubt, Maybe, doubt, maybe it's not doubt that you're the Messiah. Maybe it's just doubt of your goodness at times. Maybe if it's, it, whatever, however that manifests itself, Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would go to the source like John's disciples did, like John did. We'd come straight to you, Lord, and that you would help, uh, help our unbelief, that you would help our doubt. Lord, if there are those here that are burdened by um, their lives and by the way that they maybe even maybe even burdened by their what they believe about their their religion here and their and the way that they try to live out their Christian faith through works lord i pray that they would come to come to church here and, and uh talk with one of the pastors that you would help them to see that your burden is light your yoke is easy lord and that they can find rest for their souls even in this difficult world lord if there are some here that are unbelieving that are rejecting, Lord, I just pray you'd soften their heart and that you'd do a work in their heart to draw them to yourself. Pray as we go forward today, Lord, that you'd give everyone safety as they travel home. Give everyone a good week and may, they, uh, may we all work uh, to glorify you in whatever we're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.